Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to a special episode of FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. We're here today to discuss the 2017 budget. I'm Sebastian Payne, and I'm joined by our chief economics commentator, Martin Wolf, Rupert Harrison, who's portfolio manager at BlackRock and formerly chief of staff to George Osborne, and Miranda Green, political commentator. Thank you all for joining us. We're going to take a quick run through Philip Hammond's first and possibly last spring budget and what was in it. Martin Wolf, can you begin by just giving us an overview of what the tone was like. Philip Hammond was pretty upbeat. He delivered it in quite a confident manner in my view and it was quite funny and with some quite consequential changes too. Well it was obviously as budgets tend to be very political and he was really enjoying beating up on the Labour Party and particularly the Labour leader whom he referred to as somebody disappearing into a black hole so deep that even Stephen Hawking couldn't pull him out. I think that was the remark. But I think from his point of view, it was a fairly happy event in that the news was on balance a bit better than it had been last time. The current fiscal position right now looks better. The OBR has said this is basically because of one-offs and they haven't really changed the longer-term profile for the economy at all. They've sort of made it a bit better now and a bit worse later on. They think we're very close to full capacity. In fact, they actually think we're slightly over full capacity, as I understand it. And they haven't changed their view at all of how the economy is going to develop. They haven't changed their view of how Brexit is going to develop. So it's really, in this sense... No change, except that right now things look a little better. He was very clear that he's banking this. And essentially, the net fiscal changes, if you look at it in terms of macroeconomics, are trivial. Small tax increases, small spending increases. But they're obviously designed to hit sensitive spots, uh, things people are concerned about. Social care is an obvious one. He's indicated, under the fairness agenda, the need to deal with the anomaly in the treatment of the self-employed. That's quite a big issue. He's kicking the care issue into the long grass again with another green paper. I don't know how often we've done this analysis. So in the, in the end, his position is quite comfortable. His fiscal rules give him wild amounts of room. The OBR has indicated he's going to meet all his fiscal targets. So... Given the vast uncertainties, he must have felt pretty happy. It's Rupert Harrison, the key thing about budgets is that they unravel in the detail here. And there was actually quite a lot of detail that, as Martin said, it was obviously a political budget, but at times you felt like you needed a tax accountant to unravel all the different things being announced. As the man behind many of George Osborne's budget, what did you make of it? Well, budgets sometimes unravel and sometimes they don't. And I think the <laughs> difficult thing is predicting that. I mean, I think it's interesting that Martin thinks it was a very political budget. I mean, in some ways, the performance was surprisingly political for Philip Hammond. He is actually a funny man and that came out and he allowed himself some jokes at Labour Party's expense. On the substance, I think it was 
not very political and I think that's where he may run into trouble. I think that in particular I think it sounds like he's going to have a little bit of a bumpy ride tomorrow from particularly the Tory press and some of the tabloids on these national insurance rises. That's not necessarily terminal for those changes. I think there's quite a good case for them. They're self-employed, pay less tax. The way he's constructed them is quite clever. It's not a very big increase. It's progressive because there's a lump sum cut and then a proportional increase as the higher your income is. So he can claim he's protecting those on, on lower earnings. But they are going to have to marshal their facts and get them out to Conservative MPs and really continue to make the case if they're going to make this stick. Because particularly, I think that coming back to the central fact of this parliament, apart from Brexit, the other central fact of this parliament is that we have a Conservative government with a small majority. And that's, I think, what we have to watch over the days ahead. The immediate reaction to this hike in national insurance was the 2015 Conservative manifesto, which I think four times says there will be no increases in national insurance. Now, that's a very broad basing. It doesn't go into the details of the difference between Class 1 and Class 4 national insurance. And we don't know yet. We're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. But it sounds as if a lot of, as you said, the Conservatives are getting ready to lay into the Chancellor of this because this is natural Conservative territory here. White van men self-employed, those are the kind of people you need to appeal to. And that says to me, slightly contrary to what Martin said, the Chancellor maybe has not got his political instincts quite right yet. Well, as you say, this is absolutely core Conservative territory. You have to put yourself into the mindset of a Conservative MP are you happy to go through the lobby and vote for these things? Because that's what it's going to come down to. I think they can correctly, technically point to the fact that the tax lock law only talks about class one national insurance contributions. That's the main rate. Of course, people will argue that the manifesto wasn't so specific. I think it will be very interesting to see whether in this current political environment where most Conservative MPs are very behind the government, some of the ones you might expect to make trouble over this would probably be very behind the government on Brexit. And does that environment mean that in the end... Philip Hammond will get his way. Miranda Green, what did you make of the national insurance changes? Well, I should probably declare an interest because I am, in fact, self-employed. And when you're outside employment, the idea that employees are sort of being dealt with unfairly compared to self-employed sounds a bit odd because it's very difficult to, for example, get a mortgage. You bear a lot of overheads and it feels insecure. You don't get sick pay. You don't get paid holiday. All of these things, you haven't got a pension. So there's a large group of people out there, not just like me, I'm probably not a target for blue collar conservatism, for example, but a lot of people who are in that supposed constituency that the May government government is playing to will be affected by this change. So it could turn out to be one of those moments when a budget accidentally doesn't see what's behind it in the rearview mirror and suffers in the consequent days. But I think there were some very interesting other things in there. Partly, I think this is a bit of a news management problem. If there'd been another big story, possibly it would overshadow the national insurance There were insurance no white problem. rabbits or there anything like no that. There were no white rabbits budget. whatsoever. And a little bit of extra money for social care, which, of course, will be welcomed because that was what was missed out of his first budget last year, and that was seen to be a big political error, not giving any money to social care in the autumn. That's not enough to kind of deflect people's attention from this national insurance row, which is what it's turning into this afternoon. Martin Wolf, what are the state of the UK's public finances at the moment? Did you mentioned earlier the picture was broadly good and the tax seems to be positive, borrowing seems to be down, but essentially things look OK for this year. But then we get into a lot of uncertainty and that must be to do with Brexit. And it was very striking. The word Brexit was not used once by the Chancellor. Well, in essence, if you look at it in the big picture... The picture they're showing now is the same. 
net debt peaks, uh, I think, two percentage points of GDP less than before. I think that's the number. And who cares? The uh, deficit gets down to very low levels early in the next parliament. I think that's a picture we can live with. There are some people who think, I think Rupert used to think, probably still thinks that we should be cutting debt much more powerfully than this implies, but I can live with this. However, of course... All this is subject to massive uncertainty. At the moment, the Brexit process has gone rather better than I expected. If that continues, then it's all going to pan out very nicely and it will turn out that the OBR has been too nervous. Perhaps the economy is going to pick up. Maybe the productivity growth will start kicking in. On the other hand, maybe things will go very wrong. We don't know. But I think in terms of handling this uncertainty... I think the Chancellor has performed, given the politics particularly, he wasn't going to be able to get huge tax increases or huge further spending cuts, that's obvious. Given that, I think he's handled it fairly sensibly. I agree. On the big picture in terms of his handling of the public finances, his deficit targets, he's essentially got no critics, really. He's totally dominant in Westminster. He seemed to have handled himself very well, to have given himself room for manoeuvre. He seemed to be, I think, also striking the right balance between caution over what lies ahead because the Brexit process is very uncertain without talking down the economy. And I think you know, on all those issues, he's on pretty comfortable territory. I do still think Martin mentioned it. I do still think in the longer term, Philip Hammond is right to maintain the idea of running an overall surplus because a country like the UK with a very large banking system, very dependent on capital inflows and with very high public debt can't be complacent about the rate that it gets its debt down. But that's probably not the priority right now when we have no idea what's going to happen to the UK economy in the next couple of years, let alone the next couple of decades. Just coming back to these issues about the papers tomorrow, I mean, one reminder, we go back to the kind of famous omni-shambles budget of 2012. I mean, I remember well because I had to do the lobby briefing to all the journalists immediately after the budget and you could feel I could feel myself losing the room it was really the only time that ever really happened this was uh, all about the pasty well tasks. actually it wasn't that's exactly the point if you remember <laughs> the response the next day to the Omni Channel's budget was all about the granny tax which was phasing out the higher personal allowance that older people used to have and this was partly because one of the issues Miranda raised it was one of the few things in the budget that wasn't a surprise it hadn't been pre-briefed so everyone latched onto it actually that was one of the changes changes that stuck and that higher personal allowance for older people has now been phased out it doesn't exist anymore that was a successful piece of tax simplification which doesn't happen the problems with that budget on pasties caravans etc only emerged a couple of weeks later when the finance bill was published and Tory MPs started crawling over the details so I think we shouldn't assume just if he gets bad headlines tomorrow don't assume that this is lost actually you can survive a couple of days of bad headlines if you've got a decent case and if you've got the votes and briefly Miranda on the sure. other topics in the budget there was lots of other interesting things in there as well one of them particularly on education there's a lot of money going into vocational education these new T levels money for new grammar schools money for repairing old schools which again is all part of Theresa May's uh, part of her agenda which is about domestic reform this is her Chief of Staff Nick Timothy who's got a very bold vision of what he wants to do and it was an interesting in contrasting that with the more cautious note Martin was talking about on um, on the state of public finances. Yes, absolutely. They seem determined to try and address some of the underlying structural problems to the UK economy, one of which is a terrible deficit of skills. And so trying to attack this whole subject of why the UK is so uniquely ill-equipped in Western Europe with a vocational route where people are actually fitted for the jobs that are available is something they're trying to tackle. It's not problem-free, partly because it comes alongside money for new selective 
academic schools, whether they end up being expansion of the existing grammar schools or new free schools, and that is quite politically divisive again, and it is a risk to do it, particularly at a time when mainstream, ordinary state sector schools are facing really quite swinging cuts to their funding. So that's going to be another political route to come. But a couple of things that are very welcome, they are going to offer maintenance loans to part-time people in university and higher level technical study, which is much needed because when the higher fees were introduced, the numbers of part-time students collapsed and that was very bad as well. Um, And Rupert, what did you make of the stuff on social care? Because this has got a lot of headlines over the past couple of months as the NHS has gone through another crisis in quote marks over over the winter period. And they've thrown two billion over the next three years of this, which is sort of a sicking plaster. And we've got another green paper, as Martin said, which has been the umpteenth one in recent times here. I think it's very much indicative of the government's approach, the idea to do what they can now and then cast the net wider. But how much can they actually do in this parliament to address this issue? Well, chancellors finding one or two billion pounds for the NHS or social care is a very long tradition in British politics. There's nothing particularly unsurprising about that today. And I think he probably will satisfy most of his critics in the short term. And the particular short term issue seems to be about some areas of the country are being much more successful than others at integrating the NHS and social care and not (coughs) blocking up the hospital system with people who should be in the social care system. The longer term issue is really a different issue altogether, which really only kicks in when you look at the OBR numbers after about 2020 and then during the next decade. This whole system is just going to cost a lot more and therefore the big debate is who's going to bear that cost. Is it going to be individuals directly? Is it going to be individuals through the tax system? And if so, how? And obviously, politicians hate making those kinds of decisions. And that's why we've had a lot of reviews about this. It's intensely political. I think that it's interesting. We've heard a lot of noise about the German and Japanese systems recently. I think there was something in the FT about them. Those are both essentially systems where people pay, I think, above the age of about 40, a high rate of national insurance, effectively. That might be the kind of thing that a future government might look at. Of course, the national insurance tax lock would prevent any increase in class one national insurance on a legal basis in this parliament? Well, my own view is that given the commitments we make as a country, we are going to end up with higher taxes. We can call them insurance, but they are taxes because they're going to be compulsory. And the compulsory insurance, as far as I'm concerned, it's a tax. No politician wants to say this. It's a pity in a way because the government doesn't have an opposition, so it has an opportunity to do this. No one would criticise them, I think, very much if they went to do this. And I think they've given away a lot of revenue they didn't need to, but that's another matter. But strategically, I think they can get through the next few years. But I agree with Rupert. There are some big questions for an ageing society with probably pretty low growth, lower immigration of young people. That's part of the policy. And we're going to pay more tax and nobody wants to say this. Just one other thing that was interesting politically from his speech was he kept coming back to the theme of the union, i.e. the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which is under strain. And since Brexit, Scotland and Northern Ireland are looking very jittery indeed. And I think you and I both noticed, Seb, you know, it was almost like the stronger together tinge to this particular budget, which will be interesting to see if that actually works in holding Northern Ireland and Scotland in after Brexit. Absolutely. It's been a big topic for the government to try and hold the union together. And it'll be interesting if that has an effect. Finally, Martin, you've seen a lot of 
budget and a lot of chancellors in your time. Philip Hamley gave his autumn statement, his first big fiscal event as chancellor. Today, it was quite a different event here. How is he shaping up, in your view, as a chancellor, or is it still all too soon to say? I think he looks to me at the moment, if things go well, like one of those chancellors who handles the public finances competently at a time which isn't a time of crisis, though that makes it rather easier. And I suspect 15 years from now, my successors will say, what did Philip Hammond actually change? And their answer will be nothing. I mean, my sense is in the end, he's going to be a competent manager of the public finances. Fine. But I don't think we're looking at a great reforming chancellor. And Rupert? I think it's too early to tell because he hasn't really been tested. He will be the chancellor this will be the positive spin if it all goes well. He'll be the Chancellor who steered the UK economy through Brexit. That will be, I think, the big part of his legacy. And whether he's able to add to that some microeconomic reforms, tax reforms, we shall see. And Miranda? I think people across the political spectrum actually find his very sort of dullness and steady-as-she-goes-ness deeply reassuring at a time when the Conservative Party has got us into what might be deemed a bit of a radical mess over Brexit. And that's it for our special podcast on the 2017 budget. You can continue to follow all of our codes on ft.com and we'll be back at the weekend for a fuller look at the budget as well as this week's political news. Thank you to... Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Miranda, Rupert and Martin for joining and thank you for listening. <laughs>